Well, hello. Welcome back to the latest In The Know, On The Go podcast. We'd like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded on the land of the Wadawurrung people. In The Know, On The Go is designed to get you across the things that matter in Aussie agribusiness in a way that, well, just makes bloody sense. In this episode, I'm catching up with Andrew Whitelaw. He's a well-known analyst, founder and director of Episode 3, a data-driven market analysis service. You can check out all their work. You might recognise his Scottish accent from their popular podcast, Ag Watchers. Or if you're keeping an eye on Twitter, at Wheatwatcher. I saw Andrew last week at the CropLife Forum in Canberra and I thought his presentation was really insightful and made a lot of sense. So I thought it was worth sharing it with all of you. Now, he's a hard man to get hold of. So we grabbed him while he was at an airport. So there is a little bit of background noise, but we'll jump into it. You shared one slide there last week, which was looking at grain intake for the harvest this year. And I think it's no surprise to people that obviously with the floods and everything that's going on, the numbers are down, but how far back are numbers in terms of grain receivals compared to other years? Look, uh, this is, this is going to be a very, very interesting harvest. I think it's going to be a very long harvest. I jokingly said the other day, there's not going to be a big gap between the end of harvest in some places and the start of seeding. And like the rain that we've had over the no surprises to anyone, has been monumental. And uh, look, I'm Scottish. Uh, but the rest is, that if we look at, say, the grain receivables, which is a barometer for the East Coast, you know, Queensland, Queensland is actually ahead of average. But if you look at New South Wales and Victoria, as the start of last week, there were about 600,000 tonnes of receivables against average for the same week of about in Victoria, it was actually even worse. It was like 60 versus a long-term average of 600 or so, which is like a couple of percent of where it should be. So, so really, we're talking about a harvest that is really delayed. And, and look, I think like it's, the reality is that once people actually really start going, we're actually going to start to see more delays. And uh, just anecdotally, like even even my colleague Matt, he took his tractor out into his hobby farm paddock the other day on Saturday and, and got bogged. Took him a day to get it out. And I think that's going to be a very uh, common occurrence. And I think this harvest is going to be long and long and tiring, I think, is going to be, uh, be the thing. And look, everyone is just over it now. Like I talked to a lot of people in the industry, a lot of people in the trade, from farmers to traders, and everyone is just bored. And because we should be doing stuff now, but we're not. Now, what, what date is it just now? It's start of December. And uh, in a lot of places, we're nowhere near really started. And I know down here in Victoria that often people like to make fun of us that we're still harvesting come Christmas time. But uh, I think there's going to be lots of people that see what it's like to be harvesting through that Christmas New Year period this year. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a different experience for those guys in New South Wales that uh, would be hoping to uh, you know, finish by the first test. Uh, I think that's going to be a, a challenge. And, and, a, look, and the other thing to think about is, okay, there's, a, there's going to be people who are going to be slow to harvest, but it's going to be people who aren't going to be harvesting. And I think we've got to remember those guys who have had proper wipeouts of the crop. And even those that haven't had a wipeout of the crop, the quality is going to be relatively poor. And, you know, we, we know that a wet finish is going to end up with a... Um, a lower quality protein profile. And so we're going to have a lot of downgraded grain, a lot of 
AGP and a lot of feed, uh, which is going to be discounted. So, so we are seeing that, you know, comparatively speaking, uh, prices for lower grade wheat are at higher discounts than they typically would be, which is just a, a factor of supply and demand. There's a lot of good quality grain out there, and, and the trade is going to discount it. So it's a challenge. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this off the back of your presentation last week, but are those numbers, which are so low in terms of grain receivables, are they potentially being, I guess, shifted slightly? Like a farmer's holding more on farm potentially this year just to try and keep things, like keep the wheels in motion? Uh, look, look the, the, obviously we, we know that there is a, a growing amount of on-farm storage around the country, uh, but I don't think that takes into account how small the harvest has been so far. I think, I think it's literally just the fact that they haven't started and they haven't been able to get anything to the silo because we should still see uh, at this time of year a much larger ramping up of activity and it's just not happening. Like at this time of year, you can't get a farmer on the phone. You know, now they're not not too much. And I think that's just just a sign that harvest is just slow and um, it's not really started yet in a lot of places. So... Yeah, I think there will be on-farm uh, people putting into on-farm storage for the can because it will be slower. They won't have to potentially have the rush to actually take it to the local centralized storage because well everything's going to be slow, slow, slow. So you might say, well, let's put that into you know, the silo and just keep it there just now. That may maybe a a sort of a side effect of the slow harvest. Actually, it's a good point. Obviously. Question on. Grain prices, obviously, they've been pretty strong, and I think it's keeping people, I guess, cautiously optimistic with uh, the higher input prices, which they've been faced with this year. But what does the outlook look like into next year around those grain prices and what's happening around the rest of the world? Look, I think, I think it's important that when we look at grain prices in terms of relative value. So if we look at our grain prices in Australia, they are historically strong, but they're also historically weak compared to the rest of the world. Um, and so we are... If we look at our typical price, we'd normally have quite a strong premium versus uh, a lot of other origins. However, the last two years or so, we've had a heavy discount. But basically, if, if we look at prices, yeah, prices are pretty high. Prices are strong around the country, uh, historically speaking. So, so fingers crossed, you know, you get the volume and you get the price, fish bash bosh, margins. And we've seen that last two years, pretty good margins. So I think that is important. But... Coming into next year, look, grain prices are a global thing. We all know that. We, we see a war in Ukraine that is lingering. And will that end? I don't think it's going to end anytime soon. Uh, and, we, and we look at, say, Ukraine and Russia, uh, high cost of inputs. Ukraine especially is at low, price, low grain prices because of the difficulty exporting. So a lot of farmers are not going to plant a crop this coming year or haven't planted a winter crop this year. So what that's doing is that's pushing out a sort of an element of risk into next year uh, where we are seeing um, potential hiccups along the line. But also in addition to that, we're also seeing, you know, on the flip side, we are seeing a lot of concerns around a sort of global recession, uh, economic sort of demand destruction. We're seeing places like China a little bit on the, uh, on the shaky ground. And all that can do is uh, potentially put a bit of risk under, under grain prices. But I'm still, look, 
I'm optimistic and I'm so confident that if we look into the next 12 months, we're still going to have relatively good prices uh, for, for most of our most of our grain commodities. So I'm pretty optimistic for Scotsman. <laughs> and and with the work you guys are doing is. What about on the input side? That's going to be something which people will be front of mind for people coming back into sowing. What are, what's it telling you? Yeah. Right. Oh, right. That was the good news. <laughs> <laughs> let's get into the yeah, let's get into let's, let's get into the hard stuff because producing grain is all about growing it and selling it. So on the sales side, we've got good prices. On the input side, we've got diesel, it's high price. Um, we've got labour. High price, uh, chemicals and fertilizers high price. And a lot of this is off the back of just largely off of Vladimir Putin is the fact that we've got high energy costs around the world. And if we look at agriculture, it's basically just a conversion of energy to crops. And so if we look at fertilizer as an example, we've got that high natural gas price around the world. And what that does is it pushes through to say urea pricing, which then has obviously an impact on, on the cost that we pay in, within Australia. One of the things I would say is that we are starting to see a little bit of a downward trend in fertilizer price globally, uh, but that's largely off the back of we're in the low demand period around the world. Most of the world finished for the year, and uh, and so people are stopping buying, which is again that demand destruction. Um, but I think I wouldn't be optimistic about prices going back to the long-term averages within the next year. I think we're still going to see a relatively strong price environment. And uh, that's not necessarily great for, for margins. So that's the Russia-Ukraine piece. The other big talking point has been that Anthony Albanese got in front of Xi Jinping recently in Indonesia. Is, that, is there signs of hope here for Australian ag and trade to China? Or any, yeah, what are you guys saying? Look, I think let's be optimistic again, and let's be cautiously optimistic. I think uh, if we look at, at trade flows, uh, China is clearly a big market for Australian grains, a big market for Australian fibres, and a big market for Australian meat and wine, pretty much every agricultural product. And, and I hear a lot of people saying we need to diversify away from them. No, we don't. We need to keep them, but we also need to get other people. And so I think, um, look, I think the change of government is potentially a good sign, uh, we had a, a government that was previously probably a little bit antagonistic towards China with some of the, the as, as we all know, uh, around, around COVID. Um, but I think, um, look, the fact that we've had some discussions, I think it's a win-win if we can get trade deals back on the table. Uh, it's a win for the, the Chinese consumer, bearing in mind that they're going through some pretty uh, unusual uh, civil disturbances at the moment. So keeping the consumer happy in China for the Chinese government is probably quite an important thing. Uh, but also being able to supply that market is beneficial for, for us. So if we look at things like barley, it's a fantastic example. We sent a lot of barley to them year on year until they got banned. What's happened is that China has effectively reduced the number of doors that they have open. So they've got a less diversified import market, which has meant that they've had to pay more for barley. Uh, and we've got less for our barley. We could have potentially got paid more. They could have paid less than they're paying just now. And it'd be, you know, Johnny come lately and it would be a pretty uh, positive out, uh, outcome for, for both parties. And that's what we're looking for in trade. 
is positive outcomes for both the buyer and the seller. And hopefully, fingers crossed, touch wood, we have uh, some resolution. However, will it come soon? These things, the wheels of motion are relatively slow, I think. So I wouldn't be expecting anything anytime soon on it. But better to have that dialogue open than not. On that market diversification piece and something which has come to light and was, I think, signed off this week was that India-Australia trade piece. So there's the opportunity for diversification and increasing our trade with India. But like the, the conversations here, what does it actually mean for ag? And is it this market which overnight's just all of a sudden going to come online or further online in a much bigger way? Look, if, if we look at this, uh, the Indian trade deal, fantastic. Especially fantastic for things like pulses, potentially in the future, uh, but also cheap. It has no impact on beef, obviously, uh, because of the, uh, the demographics of India. Uh, but when we look at sheep, it's a fantastic opportunity to get uh, meat into there. Um, a huge economy, huge population. Look, they only need to get a certain percentage of their population into the middle class for us to have a huge uh, benefit to our, uh, our trade flows. Um, what I would say is it's not, the trade won't change overnight. What the deal does and what these deals do is they open up the door and they make it easy for us to trade, but it takes time for things to change. But I think we've seen in the past with other trade deals that we see over the course of you know, a couple of years, two, three years, so we see increased volumes. And that's what we're looking for. Is like, one of the things I would say, and I always remind everybody when I'm talking about international trade, is that Australia does not trade one tonne of grain with any other country does not trade one ton of meat with any other country. It's individual trading companies and exporters who trade. And all you want to do is open up the doors, whether it's phytosanitary, whether it's uh, whatever it is, to make traders able to export. Because Australia doesn't do anything. It doesn't do any volumes. Mm. It's individual traders. And whilst we, uh, whilst we talk about diversification and we say, right, with, I'll use Bali as an example, you know, we've lost China for just now. We might look at other countries like uh, the Latin America, Central America, countries that we've done some Bali into. But dollars for donuts, when China comes back online, they'll probably be the one that's offering the best price. And what will happen? We will be selling to them. No matter how much diversification you do, it will always go to the person who's paying $1 more than the next guy. Mm. And so diversification is a good idea, but in commodity trade, it is dollars that make the difference old-fashioned capitalism yeah it's very interesting and plenty to think about i think you've you've sparked me on a couple of thought bubbles that piece around yeah australia actually doesn't trade it's the individual traders i think is something which we can often overlook and there is plenty of people doing great work behind the scenes but we do need the government to play their part in opening the door but as you kind of said then it's up to the individuals to go and make it happen exactly and so the government is as a good place for uh Opening doors, basically. That's their place. And uh, generally do a pretty good job of it. All we need to do is continue that. Awesome. Well, Andrew, thank you for that. You've, we've covered grains domestically, what's happening around the world, and then also looked at some of those bigger macro opportunities and challenges with China and India. But thank you for that. We'll let you go and get your flight, and we'll chat to you soon. No worries, Ollie. Thanks for having us. It's good to, good to finally be in a professional podcast. <laughs> 
Alrighty, well, hopefully you got something out of Ollie's chat with Andrew there. My name's Maya. I've just joined the Humans of Ag team. It's been my pleasure to have brought this episode to you today. Make sure you're subscribed to In The Know On The Go so you can stay up to date with these bite-sized episodes on the things that matter. We will chat to you soon and see you later.